America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. You're listening to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Gary. We're also joined by Adam Griffin, who's a pastor at Eastside Community Church in East Dallas and has an educational background studying the historical context of racial division in Dallas. Today's topic is East Dallas. This is part one of a two-part series, so make sure that in a couple weeks when we release part two, you go ahead and listen to that as well. Adam takes us all over East Dallas, explaining the history and culture of the city. We drive to several places, so you'll hear us talking in the vehicle and outside the vehicle at different times. And although Dallas is one city, much of its history is exactly what was happening to many cities all across the country. And you'll hear many stories with through lines from past episodes we've recorded. We hope you enjoy the discussion. So we're walking up on right now is White Rock Lake, which is uh, in Dallas, they call it the, the crown jewel of the park system. It's just a beautiful lake with like nine miles of walking trails around it. Uh, but most people don't know the history of this area. And this is the reason I like to start here or to bring people here to talk about the history is there's so much that you can see all in one place together right here. So before this was a lake, it was a creek with a lot of farmland around it mostly wheat and cotton. And most of the farms here were worked by enslaved people. And in Dallas County, the farm with the most enslaved people was right here owned by a guy named Sam W. Scott. Sam W. Scott, I think had 23 men and women that he had enslaved working on his farm. It might be 26 if I'm not remembering right, but most of this area right here was those kind of farms. It was a place that now is recreation, but back in the day was very, very different. And so there was a history of, of slavery here. There's also a significant history of uh, segregation. If you look around White Rock Lake, it's a beautiful place. But when it was first built, this is kind of out in the country from the city. And when it becomes a lake, it becomes a center for hunting and boating and swimming. There was actually a swimming beach here. They used to chlorinate the lake, which is bizarre. They would chlorinate the lake so they could swim. But one of the last things to be unsegregated in just about any city in America, but in particular here in Dallas, uh, was, was swimming places. People didn't like any interracial swimming. We can hang right here if you want. Uh, so there's a beach here, and any pictures you see of the beach, it's always exclusively white people. And the crazy thing is there's no laws prohibiting interracial swimming. It was socially enforced, they say, which means basically, don't you dare show up. There was actually only one public place on this side of town where people who were black were allowed to swim, quote unquote, where 
It was their place. It's a place we'll go later on this tour together. It was called um, Hall Negro Park. Now it's called Griggs Park, and we'll talk about why it's name changed as well. But this is a, a lake that used to be farms of enslaved people. Then it became uh, segregated, kind of a, a white recreational area. But the other reason I really like to start here is the history runs really deep here. It reminds us that if we just start 100 years ago, then we're not doing justice to the real history of Dallas. Uh, just less than 100 years ago, there was a group of people who here at this lake found an ancient gravesite at the spillway, which is at the very tip of this lake. And in that gravesite, there was a man and a young boy and a baby who were buried somewhere between zero and 500 AD. And they were Native Americans. They were Caddo Indians. And for thousands of years, the property that we're on was Caddo Indian land and Cherokee Indian land. And they would, uh, what we now call Native Americans, they, then they called Indians. They, they ran this land. They were nomadic tribes of people that would, uh, they would stay in places for long periods of time. Then they would move on. They would hunt. They would farm. But this was their property. And so if you start the history of Dallas in the 1840s with John Neely Bryan, you really don't do justice to the fact that although that's when the city called Dallas starts here, it's not when people start here. And so I wanted to read a couple quotes from back then so you could get kind of an idea of, of the way people thought about it. Uh, but before I do that, let me explain one other thing that I think is really interesting. Uh, you guys know the state motto for Texas? Can I know it? Texas is the friendship state. Do you know that? Okay, it's the friendship state. And the reason it's the friendship state is because Texas comes from the Spanish word Tejas, which is really a repronunciation of a Caddo word, the Caddo Native Americans, for the word friendship. They were considered very friendly Indian people. They had a word, Tejas, which the Spanish pronounced Tejas, which then the, tech, the uh, white settlers then called the area Texas, which meant friends, which meant we are allies, which means we work together. So ironically, the entire name of our state is based on a word from these people about how friendly they were. Mm -hmm. Tejas, Texas, the Caddo Indians. But at the time, you can read a book, uh, 1905, there's a book called Texas Indian Troubles. And it states that the purpose will be, this is a quote, will be to place on record a correct history of the facts connected with and the sacrifices made by the early settlers in order to redeem this great land from the hands of the roving bands of Indians that had always occupied it and had done nothing to improve or develop it. In 1838, the president of the Republic of Texas was a man named Mirabeau B. Lamar, and he uh, started kind of a, a um, what we would now call a genocide at the time they thought was a righteous war to kind of take their land. He referred to it as an exterminating war, which will admit no compromise and have no termination except in the total extinction, extinction or total expulsion. In it, he referred to Native Americans as, quote unquote, wild cannibals of the woods. And so this was kind of a, a campaign to free this land, quote unquote, from the Native Americans. One thing that may interesting, uh, interest you, Katina, you live in Denton, right? Yes. So you may know this already, but Denton County and Denton, the city, is named after a man whose last name was Denton, who yes. worked with a man whose last name was Tarrant, for whom Tarrant County is named. Yes. And those properties are named after those men because those men went on the campaign to remove the Caddo Indians from this part of the country so that white settlers could build their city. Yes. So the reason I want to talk about that is while we're going to talk a lot about African-American history, what it looks like on this part of town, it's important to remember that the very land we stand on is what it is because of genocide hundreds of years ago. Mm. And before that, for thousands of years, it belonged to another people group who were considered um, savages by the settlers, but never got to tell their side of the history, uh, the history either.
So as you mentioned that, there's a book, uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, that yeah. is an Indian, a Native American telling of Native American history uh, that's just really powerful and was really formative for me of uh, my understanding of that history and just how one-sided history can be told and how distorted it can be. Um, just hearing the other side and seeing that distortion kind of right before you is, is a powerful thing. So I would recommend that for the listeners who are interested in knowing more. That's good. Okay, so all of this retail space here to our left is surrounded by uh, residences. It's surrounded by residential neighborhoods. Uh, and for 100 years, from the mid-1860s until the mid-1960s, this area here was a freedman town known as Little Egypt. And Little Egypt was named by its residents because they wanted to, to connect with the biblical story of being freed from bondage. And so they named their community uh, Little Egypt. It was property deeded to a family, the Hill family, who had it uh, deeded to them by the person who had formerly owned them as, as enslaved people. Brad, you're going to turn left right where that truck is turning up there. And so for almost 100 years, so until the 1960s, this was a freedman town. And that freedman town did not want to cease existing. It lasted 100 years. There was a lot of pride in that neighborhood. But the city refused to put in utilities. They wouldn't pick up garbage. They wouldn't install water. Wow. Uh, and so they, it was, if you looked at a picture, I can show you satellite pictures or helicopter pictures from from back in the day. And you can see how this property was totally underdeveloped compared to everything around it. It was This was all dirt roads. And in fact, the only thing left from Little Egypt that is still here is in just a second, when we pull around this corner, you're gonna see a dirt road on the right. And Brad, if you just wanna hang there for a second, we see it's just almost a little alley. And it is the only thing left uh, from when this was, uh, you keep going, it's gonna be right up here. Yeah, why don't, why don't you send us one of those satellite photos and we'll put that in the show notes. Great. So just past this stop sign on the right. Yeah, right there. Yep. So this little dirt road is the only original part left of what was a Freedman town for a hundred years. And so you can see around it, you can see right here, these are nice houses. Well, these nice houses came in and the people who lived in Little Egypt were like, well, can we get, you know, somebody pick up our trash? Can we get somebody to put in water utility? It's right here. And the city kept refusing. Because at the time, uh, if you... If you study the history of cities, cities weren't as big now as they were then. They were constantly annexing neighborhoods. Now this neighborhood's part of our city. Now this neighborhood's part of our right. city. Well, this Friedman town, uh, Dallas did not want to annex. They were like, no, that's a, that's a junky little uh, slum. And so we don't want to annex that. And so it wasn't until the 60s when they, all the owners of the homes in Little Egypt agreed to sell together and get enough money to go live somewhere else that it was annexed, incorporated, and then became retail space in the middle of this residential neighborhood. But this dirt street, most people drive by every day, have no idea that that's, that's been there for hundreds of years. And uh, that little alleyway is the one remaining part of what was a not only functioning, but thriving Freedman town. 200 people were living here, dozens of families who had lived here since their families were freed from slavery and then all moved to basically Oak Cliff or Rockwall afterwards. Many of them moved together, but that was kind of the end of that. Wow. Mm. In May 1962, actually, of the 200 residents, William Hill was still here, who was a direct descendant of the Hills who started it. He was 89 at the time that it shut down, so he had lived almost 100 years. And at that time, much like today, I don't think... Uh, Civil War is not as far removed as we make it sometimes in our head. I mean, he is... He's talking to his parents about the Civil War. 
we now, if you talk to your grandparents, they could tell you what their grandparents had to say about the Civil War. Like, it's, it's in living memory. My great-great-grandmother, her father was a slave, and he didn't pass away until I was, she didn't pass away until I was 20. So, yeah. Wow. It's real. It's real. It's a living memory. All right, from here, we're going to go to a, a cemetery. So if you want to just try to turn left here if you can, that might be easiest actually for us. And then White Rock Coffee is right here. So when I tell people where, when people want to know where Little Egypt was, I always say, well, where White Rock Coffee is now, that's kind of the, the landmark is um, where it was. And they had a Little Egypt Baptist Church was here mm -hmm. uh, for the longest time. And they actually picked up and moved the whole building with them when they left. Wow. And so the Little Egypt First Baptist Church building is still a very small, very old, decrepit part of a church building somewhere else in Dallas. You are going to turn right. Wow. Uh, and much, uh, much like many of the Freedman towns, this road that we're looking at right now actually bisected their property at one point uh, because of eminent domain. And a lot of cities had no problem exercising eminent domain in neighborhoods that they didn't already like. And so they just put a road right through the middle of it. All right. The uh, eminent domain came up in a recent episode. I looked into it more and saw that it was uh, 10 times more likely to be used on black families than on white families. Really? Yeah, yeah there's a tenfold uh, over-representation of eminent domain being used. If you want to get in the right black. lane, it'll be a little bit, but the cemetery's coming up soon. That's fascinating. I mean, mm -hmm. I'd like to say it's surprising. It's not surprising, but it is. That's awful. And, that, and again, just to kind of remind people, that disparity doesn't exist, you know, just randomly. That's not right. a random disparity. You have to have a reason for a disparity that large. Absolutely. And I think we'll always come back to, like, you just have to believe that there's a reason, someone actively making it that way. It's not that black people just so happen to live in ideal highway locations right. for everyone. Right. I, uh, I wrote an article several years ago on buried black history in Dallas, and it talks about uh, what was called the Mill Creek slum at the time. It was a creek that was poorly taken care of and mostly uh, Hispanic. At the time, they called it a Mexican and Negro neighborhood. And then when they wanted to put in highways in order to make sure that the suburban wealthy could make it into downtown, they cleared the slums at a time where, and we'll talk about this in a minute, where there wasn't room to put them anywhere else and because they weren't allowed to live wherever they wanted to. And all they could live is in like flooded plains and, and shacks. And so uh, wow. for the white city leaders, they looked at that and said, well, we're going to clear this land that's pretty bad anyway, but with no regard at all for the humans who lived there or even owned the property. So this is now, we're in Lake Highlands, which is the biggest neighborhood in Dallas. It's about 90,000 people. It's the neighborhood I live in. It's crazy diverse. You can have a really wealthy neighborhood right next to a very poor neighborhood, a very white neighborhood next to a black neighborhood, next to a Hispanic neighborhood. It's just uh, a ton and ton, a ton, a ton of refugees from all over the world. If we had time to go by my house, you would see an apartment complex right across the street that's mostly Syrian, Afghan, and African refugees. And, um, and my next-door neighbors are from Russia. Next door to them, they're from Jamaica. Uh, African-American, white American. I love this neighborhood, but it, it, like anywhere else in America, has a ton of problems, and a lot of them are rooted in history. That's why, to me, it's so important to study some of the history, to say, to realize what this is all built on. And if you study the history of Dallas, just like if you study the history of any city, you realize that neighborhoods, uh, older neighborhoods were designed for a particular ethnicity. 
So if it was designed for wealthier white people, it's designed different than if it was designed to be an enclave of either Hispanic or African-American people. Here's an interesting tidbit too. Up on the, there's a sign next to us on a pole that says this school is 60 years old. It's a private school, 60 years old. Uh, anybody know what happened 60 years ago? Why private schools would have started right around here in Dallas? Desegregation. Desegregation, yep. Yeah. So if you look into the history of when private schools began in Dallas, you'll find a lot of them began in the late 50s and early 60s when integration was being forced upon families. Well, they just said, fine, we're going to start our own school. Okay, pretty soon. So you're going to move back into the right lane again after these guys. It, it makes it so real when it's like, look at that sign right there. Yeah. Yep. It's not just this abstract historical fact. It's like, here's a sign that literally right now we're just randomly passing and nobody sees it and just thinks this is racial history, but right. it is. All right. But it is. I mean, it's all interconnected, right? You'd think, hey, we're celebrating 60 years. That's a great thing. Also, do you know why it's been 60 years? Mm -hmm. And there's some pretty interesting stuff that we you really got to look at. You can't really talk through, but there's some maps of Dallas from the early 1900s. And what's interesting, if you look at like directories, which are like our version of the yellow pages or, um, yeah, it's a directory. It lists people and, and their occupations and their addresses. And on maps, you can see where they live. And on maps around that time and in directories, they would put a little lowercase c in parentheses next to somebody's name if they were, anybody know? Colored. Colored. And so you can actually look up directories from the early 1900s and see what were the occupations of the colored people and where did they live and what were the uh, neighborhoods they were allowed to live in and did they rent or did they own. And it's pretty fascinating. Even that's about 50 years post-Emancipation Proclamation where you can see um, what were people doing, where were they living, and how were they segregated at the time. And so you can do some interesting crossover of that combined with redlining maps, combined with the racial dot maps that we've had from the census, the last two census reports this year and 10 years ago. And you can see where people would like to argue, well, things have changed so much, they're not like that. You'll see very much so that if somebody in 1900 was living in a neighborhood that was mostly African-American or mostly Hispanic, chances are now it's either a highway or it has uh, remained so to today. There's not really a ton of crossover change. Yeah, I was just looking at one of the updated census racial dot maps and it's just so not this incredibly time. segregated still. We're going to have to uh, do a little U-turn. It is extremely segregated still. You're We're going to go right down that alley. Yep. And then right behind this little fenced-in area is going to be two separate fenced-in areas. And if we want to pull over for a second at the top of this hill, I'll show you what they are. But this first one here on our right, and you can see it's kind of overgrown, but you can see some tombstones back in there. This was the European-American Cemetery. Mm. And then if you keep driving or keep moving up here then there's a separate and segregated African-American cemetery. Wow. And so even when they would bury people, they had to have separate plots of land donated by separate people. And so this right here, what's, what's called the McCree Cemetery was, and we can get out and walk around if you want, um, was the European-American cemetery. And it was donated by uh, a woman named Bonner McCree. Bonner was her maiden name. And interestingly enough, there's actually a, a park in, in Dallas called Bonner Park that's named after somebody that she had formerly owned. He became one of the largest landowning former uh, enslaved people in Dallas. And so Bonner Park, which is now where like Watermark Church is and uh, Medical City Hospital, 
he was owned by this lady and then uh, had to be released, obviously, when the Civil War concluded. But let's get out and I'll show you the difference between the two cemeteries real quick. So the graves in this, yeah, the graves in this cemetery date back to the 1700s. It's one of the oldest cemeteries in Dallas County. You can find it on very old maps here. And so McCree Cemetery, like I said, this is the European-American side of it. And then here on the left, you'll see a fence line. That separates the European-American from the African-American cemetery. So Little Egypt, the Freedman Town that we just came from, the people who were the originators of that community, their graves are right here in the African-American Cemetery. We can walk over there real quick, but I want you to notice too, the difference in tombstones also, you'll imagine, I mean, it, this won't surprise you, also display a wealth differential. You look in this European-American cemetery, it's, it was better kept, it was huge tombstones, it was a bigger property, and then we'll go next door and we'll show you the, the African-American Cemetery real quick too. So this is the African-American cemetery. Do you guys notice any significant difference? It's just yeah. empty. It just looks like an empty plot of land. You can kind of see one tombstone back there in the corner. Yep. And if it wasn't locked, we could show you some that are basically ground level yeah. that are in there. But um, it's a major difference and a, just another display of disparity, but also just a display of segregation, that even in death. Yeah. Like we're going to put you in a different plot of land. We don't even want to rest our bodies next to one another, have funerals that might overlap one another. And so they have, it literally, it is still fenced off between each other. Even though this is a cemetery all across, all it's across. still a fence between the two. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Okay, where we're headed right now is Sam Tasby Middle School. And Sam Tasby is named after, guess who? Sam Tasby, who, is, he's famous in Dallas because in 1970, his children were not allowed to attend school with white students. 1970 is 15 years after Brown versus the Board of Education, where everybody in Dallas is supposed to have an, a racially integrated school, and his kids were still not allowed into their neighborhood school. Wow. Even though they live there, because they're African-American, they're forced to go somewhere else. So this is 16 years after that ruling, he sued to say, I want my kids to be able to go to this school. And his lawyer took, took the case, and in 1971, a judge ruled that Dallas ISD had not integrated and must desegregate. So that was 16 years after wow. the original decision. Uh, it also put the district under federal court supervision until 2003. Any guesses on what year DISD was declared integrated? What would you think? In 1955, is when Brown versus the Board of Education happens, and then it gets in the courts in the 1970s. When does DISD finally integrate? I would guess maybe in 1980. It's a good guess. It was in 1994 that the court finally said, not so much that it had ever integrated, but that they had done everything they could. Wow. See, what happened is, it didn't matter what the school system did, the private citizens of Dallas were not interested in integrating. So anytime a school uh, bust students from one racially homogenous neighborhood to another, the white kids would not show up for the bus. They would just drop out and go to a private school or move to the suburbs. That was the initiation of white flight. In fact, if you study population growth in Dallas's suburbs, of which there are a lot on the north end, you'll see in the late 50s and early 60s, huge spikes in population growth in the suburbs because people who were assigned to bus to integrated schools that were white families just instead just moved to the suburbs. Or if they found out that their school was going to be integrated, some of them pulled it out, pulled yeah. out their kids.
because out in the suburbs, all the families were white, so the schools were kind of de facto still exactly right, still segregated. Yeah. In fact, I have a a map I can give you for your show notes of uh, Dallas Independent School District from 1965. So it's 11 years after Brown versus the Board of Education, and four years after there was a court-ordered desegregation, and one year still after the Civil Rights Act. And you can see on the map, they still have on the map key that these schools are white schools and these schools are Negro schools in 1965. Wow. And uh, we'll, later in the tour, we'll go to Hamilton Park. Hamilton Park had its own school as well. Hamilton Park was a planned black neighborhood. And although born uh, Brown versus the Board of Education had mandated integration in 1954, and that school opened in 1955, it still was only kids from Hamilton Park, from the Fields Edition, which is a family I told you guys a little bit about, and then from Little Egypt, which is the neighborhood we just went into, because those were the African-American enclaves on this side of the city. Those kids bust all the way there instead of to their neighborhood schools. And in 1970, Richardson ISD, which is a different ISD, it's a suburban one, but still part of Dallas, they vowed to integrate their schools in 1970 and declare, they, they tried to make the excuse that uh, they were integrating, it just happened to be which neighborhoods people lived in, but that obviously was not the case. Five years into the court order, Hamilton Park Elementary had never enrolled a white student. That's 20 years after the court ordered integration. And the all-white school board at the time, they argued that it was unavoidable and therefore not discriminatory. But the U.S. Department of Justice uh, agreed in 1975 unanimously that Hamilton Park Elementary School had become an all-black school for students living throughout the district, not just in the neighborhood. And all but one of the district's 25 other elementary schools remained predominantly white. So they still, even post-court order, you can see this all over the place. DISD, the, the Dallas School District we're in, they be, it started in 1884, and at the time there were four white schools and two at the time what they called colored schools. You guys might have heard of the arts magnet school, Booker T. Washington, which is downtown. Yes. That was, that's now a very popular arts magnet oh, school. Yeah. It's where, um, man, Erica ba- Badu Erica went there. Mm-hmm. And so uh, people, even from the suburbs, will try to lie about their actresses to try to get their kids into Booker T. Washington. It's a very popular arts magnet. Yep. Well, when that school started, it was called Dallas Colored High School. <laughs> and by the 1930s, it had about 1,600 students in the campus that was only meant to intended to hold 600 which meant that freshmen and sophomores at that time got half a day and juniors and seniors got half a day because they couldn't fit all the students in the school at once and they and there was uh, no chance to integrate or go to another school and so at that time not only did sometimes uh, for african-american students they skipped a grade uh, because there wasn't enough room for them but it also meant they were getting a half day of school for their white counterparts who were getting a full day of school at fully staffed schools all around town and so the education disparity obviously leads to opportunity disparity. So you can see how those things could uh, could cascade, could avalanche into other things. But And then it reinforces racism by almost backing the stereotypes of black inferiority. Big time. Um, well, and the textbooks at the time even. The textbooks, uh, there's a textbook in 1927 that touted white man's burden to care for the lesser race by allowing them the privilege of life under white civilization. That's that's Texas school wow. curriculum. So it's not just how they were living, it's what they were teaching. Oh and for Mexican-Americans in Dallas school, there was there was laws and rules in schools against speaking Spanish. Uh, teachers weren't allowed to speak Spanish. The kids had to learn English. And so in 
In 1918, they passed an English-only law that banned any school or employee from using Spanish on school grounds and made it a criminal offense to teach any language other than English. A criminal wow. offense. Yeah. That's, that's like so over the top, not even just a policy saying don't do this, but to yeah, it criminalize like, it. Yes, you could get a ticket, you could get arrested, who knows what, but yeah. Of course, there was token desegregation. People would claim to have desegregated because they'd have one or two families they would allow into a white school and say they were desegregated. But at the time that desegregation became the law, DISD was still about 80% white. And now it's, I, I can't remember the, the percentages now. I want to say it's something like 20%. Uh, but about 40% of white students in the 60s moved to the suburbs of Plano, Richardson, Louisville, Duncanville, in Garland. And uh, all their plans kept failing for integration. And that's not to say the DIST didn't try. I do believe that there was a lot of efforts in the institution, but the private citizen was not interested in uh, being a part of what they were trying to do. First year and a half, and that's named after Emmett Conrad, who was the first school board member who was African American in uh, Dallas. He was a surgeon, and he's—if you look him up—he's got a lot of great quotes about what he thought about racial segregation in Dallas and how that worked uh, for him as a physician. And a little bit, we'll talk about the hospitals on our side of town as well. But that up there on the left is Conrad, and the neighborhood we're pulling into now is Vickery Meadow, which is the highest level poverty and most densely populated part of our city uh, and a huge percentage of it is refugee if you remember a couple years ago when ebola came to america and it came to dallas and yeah. uh, somebody in dallas had ebola that's right up here on the right was these apartment complexes right after these uh this park and there's the conrad high school football team has about 25 kids on it uh which in texas you may know that is not a big football team, but the school is huge. But because of the refugee and immigrant population, football's not a super popular sport. So these poor kids, man, they get out there every week and play against huge schools and they just get slaughtered. Yeah. And I mean, I think you alluded to a good point there is that a lot of times that's how integration played out was that there'd be a schools that would allow in black students and then and there's some instances where every single white student was withdrawn within a couple of years or there were neighborhoods where the first black family would move in and within a few years almost every single white family had left yeah that's exactly right i know you guys have talked about redlining before yeah and so uh, your listeners may be familiar with redlining, yeah. but redlining in Dallas was much like it was in many other cities. And if you look at a map of where different ethnicities lived at the time and overlap that with our redlining map, it's identical to wherever Hispanic immigrants and African-Americans lived. That was considered a red zone where home loans would not be given out. You can turn right here if you want. Greenville Avenue has an interesting history all to itself. This this used to be Highway 75. This was the way out of Dallas. Now it's just a, a, a road, it's a street. Highway 75 follows what was the Central Railroad track, which we'll talk about when we get down to Deep Ellum. But so this was the highway. This is where Bonnie and Clyde, when they would steal things in Dallas and then yeah. drive out of the state, this is the road they would take. Wow. So this was just a highway at the time. Uh, this is also where uh, two of the three surgical abortion clinics are in Dallas, is right here along Greenville. So when we do our church tour, we talk about those over here as well. Yeah. And then refugee ministry in the neighborhood we just passed through. Okay, so you guys are familiar with redlining. The neighborhood that we're about to get into 
at the time, this was way out in the country. And so Hamilton Park was built because of what at the time was called a black housing crisis. The black housing crisis happened because the population of African-Americans was much greater than the property allotment for them to live in. And so there were people living three, four families to a house in neighborhoods that were already not well built. They had no utilities. And when they would move into neighborhoods, because they could actually, they could afford homes other places, they just weren't allowed to buy them. And so every once in a while, there would be an African-American family that would say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy a house in this neighborhood. And on, uh, there's a debate, but somewhere between 10 and 15 times in Dallas, when a, a black family bought a house in a white neighborhood, uh, they found dynamite left on the porch. Oh, and uh, so it was literally acts of terrorism that could have killed people. No one ever died, but could have killed them. It was, it was violent, blew up their brand new homes. There was a, there's a story about a Howell Street, a man who moves into a home on Howell Street, and the day he's moving in, a bunch of uh, women surround his house and throw rocks through all the windows, and they protest and tell him to go away. He has this heartbreaking interview with the newspaper where he says, if I had known that it was going to be like this, I would never have bought the house, but now I've bought the house, and I've got nowhere to go, and they've ruined it, and it's just awful. So at the time, imagine... Being African-American and being a lawyer or a doctor, obviously, at the time, it was still for a segregated community. We're talking about late 40s, early 50s. So if you're a black lawyer, it was only for black clients. If you're a black doctor, it was only for black patients. And yet you could afford to buy a house, but there was nowhere you were allowed to buy it. And so Hamilton Park was kind of an agreement with the city that they would build a middle-class neighborhood for African-American families. And nobody wanted it nearby them. So they built it out here at the time, which was kind of the country. It was along the, the train track, which is now uh, 75 Central Expressway and 635, one of the other major highways is on the other border of it. But at the time there was nothing. And if you look at a map of Hamilton Park from above, it's concentric circles. It's it's all built to be isolated and by itself. If if you talk, I talked to a city planner about, about the neighborhood once. And they said, if you're planning a neighborhood, you want it to work like a grid, that there's a lot of ways in and a lot of ways out, tons right. of flow. Hamilton Park is built almost like a labyrinth. It's like, no, there's one way in, and then once you're in, it's a bunch of concentric circles of houses. Right here on our right, as we pass through this light, is uh, the Southwest Women's Clinic. That's uh, the busiest abortion clinic in Dallas. It's right here. And so you'll often see people protesting right out here or praying. You're going to come up here to Forest Lane, and we're going to turn left. We're actually very close also to where the Cowboys' uh, original practice facility was in Dallas. Uh, I mentioned this to you guys earlier. At the time when Dallas uh, Cowboys moved their practice facility up here in the 60s, um, there's a couple players on the team that now are Hall of Famers. One was uh, Bullet Bob Hayes. He was He's the only man, I think, still in history to have a gold medal and a Super Bowl ring. He was the fastest man in the world. He's a Hall of Famer, and he was not allowed to buy a house in the neighborhood where he played football. Even, uh, so the Fair Housing Act starts in 1968, where you're no longer allowed, quote unquote, to distinguish somebody's, uh, to consider someone's ethnicity and whether or not you sell them a home. But Mel Renfro, who was also a Hall of Famer, who's also on the Cowboys, had to sue in 1969, a year after that, in order to get the house he wanted in this neighborhood. Because when he showed up on the day he signed the lease on the duplex that he and his wife were getting, they said he couldn't have it. They didn't realize he was black. Wow. So even though, this is another good example of, even though the laws on the books does not mean that the private citizens were interested in integrating. 
And so he, he won his court case and was allowed the duplex, but then he's got to move into a neighborhood where he knows he is not wanted. And he's, at the time, one of the most famous people in the country. So they just, cheered for him to play ball, but they don't want to live anywhere near him. It, it, it's yeah. just asinine. Yeah. You're going to turn left right here. So at the time, th this is so astounding. The, the Cowboys offered $20,000 if you were uh, to any player who was willing to buy a house in the neighborhood. But then, of course, if you weren't white, you weren't allowed to buy a house in the neighborhood. So it's kind of like they offered you a housing scholarship of, hey, let's move out here to Lake Highlands, which at the time was a brand new neighborhood. Uh, kind of like Frisco is now, where, the, where they just moved and said, we're going to move to the nicer part of town. Let's all move out here together. But if you were black, you had to drive to South Dallas, which if you know Dallas, South Dallas is a good 30 minutes away now, even with highways. And so uh, Bill, Bullet Bob Hayes has a famous quote where he said something like, after the game, uh, all the white players go out and party and, and walk home, and then we've got to drive a thousand miles away to see our families. Yep. Up here on the right will be an urban farm up here, because a lot of poverty in our city has not been resolved downtown so much as moved out of downtown. And right. so this neighborhood is now a lot of impoverished people. This, this neighborhood library here on the right is one of the worst libraries you'll ever see. I mean, their kids' section is like a handful of books. It's it's just pitiful. Wow. But it's an uh, Ethiopian restaurant right here. It's a big Ethiopian population. And um, it's a cool confluence of a lot of cultures, but still a lot of problems. Oh, the housing we just passed on our left, you probably can't see it as well now, but that's a Section 8 project housing right there. Mm -hmm. You can see how militant it looks and how... It is not built for aesthetics. Right. So a lot of the housing up here is Section 8, which means that the landlord gets a, a tax benefit right. for renting out lower-income housing. Texas Instruments here on our right. This was the invention of the integrated circuit here in, like, the 60s, I want to say, maybe the 50s. But, like, every cell phone you use, every car we drive now is due to the microchips they make there. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. For $5 a month, you can play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. All of the money in this batch of 10 episodes will be going to Abide Women's Health Services in Dallas. On our next episode, we will be continuing our discussion on East Dallas. We'll leave you with this quote from Marian Anderson. No matter how big a nation is, it is no stronger than its weakest people. And as long as you keep a person down, some part of you has to be down there to hold him down. So it means you cannot soar as you might otherwise. <laughs>